Tonight is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins a season of repentance. It is a time of seeing our sinfulness and our poverty contrasted against the beauty of Jesus. It's a season of bright sadness. We are sharply aware of our great need, yet always hold on to this in the light, of, in the light and hope of Easter glimmering in the distance. I want you to invite you tonight to join me in a passage in Matthew's Gospel that brings us to Jesus in a pivotal time of his earthly ministry. This passage, more than anything, calls us to see the character of Jesus in a time when he faces trials, trials that we will see aren't unknown to us as well. Matthew's third chapter concludes with a dramatic scene. While Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin, John, the heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a mighty voice comes out of the heavens. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. After Jesus experiences this amazing moment of affirmation, Matthew transitions to a contrasting story. Matthew has just shown us that Jesus is the Son of God. And now he shows us Jesus experiencing something very human. Right after this great affirmation in the baptism, the Son of God goes into the desert alone and is tested. As we read the story from Matthew, we just heard it, remember that Jesus was alone. Thus the telling of this story must have been a self-disclosure from Jesus to his disciples, giving them a glimpse into his personal life, into his personal battles. Because of this, it's a vital story to knowing and understanding Jesus. So vital that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell it to us. So let's listen again to it. Listen as, it, as if it's Jesus' journal. He's telling it to us again about his time in the wilderness and see what it shows us about the Son of God who is tempted, just like us. So I'm going to read it again. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So in the Jewish tradition, leaders often ventured into the wilderness for a season of preparation with God before beginning some task. So Jesus' journey itself into the, into the wilderness isn't a surprise. But the interesting piece in this passage, of course, is what happens to Jesus there. He is tempted by Satan himself. You should know two things about this statement before going further. 
One, who is Satan? His name literally means an enemy or adversary. Throughout Scripture, he is an evil spiritual figure who creates division between God and humanity through such things that are called tests or tempting. Two, there is an inherent tension about Satan here. He is undeniably opposed to God's plans, yet his temptations to turn Jesus away from the Father are in a greater sense under the sovereignty of the Spirit who led him into the desert. So while Satan is certainly attempting to divide the Father and the Son and derail Jesus' mission, the whole experience does take place under God's sovereignty, under his plans. Jesus must face these tests before he begins his ministry. So with this, back, this background in mind, let me give you the big idea in this passage. By seeing Jesus refuse Satan's lies and choose to rely fully on his Father, we actually see the character of God and his vision for humanity fully alive. I'll say that one more time. By seeing Jesus refuse Satan's lies and choose to instead rely fully on his Father, we're actually seeing the very character of God and his vision for humanity fully alive. How do we see God's character and his vision for humanity? By looking at Jesus, who is actually fully God and fully human, and how he responds to these tests, the bread, the temple, and the mountain. And what we'll see is we'll see Jesus refuse the self-serving, domineering strategies Satan offers and respond with God's character perfected in humanity, which continually returns to complete trust in the Father. So let's begin with the bread in verse 3. Verse 3 to 4 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This test, more than the others, immediately begs a question. Why is turning stones into bread a big deal? We know from later in Matthew's Gospel, of course, Jesus can miraculously turn stones into bread. So what is Jesus really choosing to do by not turning the stones into bread? There are two clues for us. The first is Jesus' response. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, a passage where Moses is warning Israel about difficulties they will soon face as God's people. In fact, Jesus pulls from this passage in Deuteronomy to answer each one of Satan's ploys. This shows us that the lies Satan has to offer are not isolated to Jesus alone, but were lies Israel actually faced many, many years before, and are lies that we too as humans face today. Secondly, this test also draws us back to Exodus 16, where the people of Israel are also hungry in the desert. There are more parallels. Israel was in the desert 40 years, Jesus 40 days. God gave Israel manna, a flaky sort of bread from heaven to eat each day to teach them that they must live in constant dependence on God. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus calls himself the true bread from heaven. So now we have Jesus, the true bread from heaven, in the desert being tested. Will he depend on the Father to take care of him? This is the question. Will he depend on the Father to take care of him? Unlike the Israelites in the desert who failed this test, 
the true bread from heaven decides differently. He releases his control and chooses to depend on the Father to provide for his every need, even when his life is threatened. He decides that trusting every word from the Father is more important than eating bread. If you're still not convinced this is a big deal, think of it this way. If Jesus chose not to trust the Father and create his own plan and make some bread because he was hungry, what trajectory would he have been on in the Garden of Gethsemane? When in deep sorrow he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from, from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus lived his entire earthly life, completed his earthly mission, and died his sacrificial, atoning death, all in utter dependence on the Father. All of this is at stake in this, in this test. Satan's next test is for Jesus to spin the tables and test his Father, to test God. Satan quotes Psalm 91, which promises God's sovereign care and protection over those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. So surely Jesus, the Son of God himself, must be included in this lot. God will certainly send his angels to miraculously catch him. But creating such a fabricated situation is the opposite response of someone who does dwell in the shelter of the Most High. It is a manipulative use of authority, the Son pressuring the Father to obey His will, instead of the Son trusting every word from the Father. It's the same temptation for God's children, for us, to assert our will as primary over God's, to pray, My kingdom come, My will be done instead of God's will be done. Jesus, of course, recognizes this. He refuses to practice manipulation and chooses again to trust God's provision. Lastly, Satan drops his subtleties and throws out an outright test of apostasy. Worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Surely if Jesus is on a kingdom mission, which he soon tells us he is, this would be helpful. But Jesus is not about to betray his father and abandon his sonship in this moment. No, the kingdom Jesus is bringing will not come by conquest and force. It will instead come by obedience, by worshiping the Lord God alone, and by yielding to his will. Jesus rebukes Satan. The test is ended, and angels come and care for his needs. So in this testing, the Son of God defeats Satan and his lies that create a false vision of humanity and instead gives us an amazing picture of God's character made perfect in, in a human. A picture of what humanity, truly and perfectly alive, looks like. Jesus releases control of his circumstances, yielding to his Father, even in the face of death. He refuses to ask the Father to bend his will towards his own, and he refuses to grasp onto earthly authority and glory for his own sake. Jesus shows us that his power will come through obedience and his authority through sacrifice. And even this vision of humanity, even though this vision of humanity contradicts our human instincts to pursue a self-glorifying life where we are in control, respected for our abilities and achievements, and can rest in our personal definition of success, there is something, I believe, that captivates us about God's character and Jesus' vision of humanity.
People find a life of trust and sacrifice inescapably appealing. That is why martyrdom in the history of the church has always spurned growth, not destruction. And in seeing Jesus for who he truly is, we are seeing the core of why we are drawn to a life that contradicts our human nature. It is because living into God's character that we see in Jesus' testing, his dependence, his trust in his Father, his willingness to sacrifice everything, is the very sort of life we as humans are actually made for. As we see the character of Jesus in this passage, if you're like me, the theme of Ash Wednesday and Lent, repentance, recognizing our need for a Savior, cannot be avoided. And tonight, as we begin Lent, a season that is most known for fasting, I want to challenge you to actually not make this season about fasting. Instead, I challenge you to pledge this season to seeing Jesus Christ for who he is, God himself, and his character made human. I believe when we do this and allow his character to settle in us, we realize how much we were made to live in Christ, how healing, how freeing, how right living with his character actually is. What does it mean to see Christ in this transformative way? To have him transform us? For one, it means refusing to dwell in a world of lies, the very lies that Jesus defeated in the wilderness and that we submerse ourselves and one another in every day. Maybe this is a false sense of comfort, that you are in control of your life, that you are strong. Our culture and social media is of great use for this lie. It allows us to advertise who I wish I was and interact with everyone else as they wish they were. This is a false sense of control and comfort. Or maybe it is an overwhelming despair, the lie that you are too wretched to ever be truly loved. Similarly, social media loves this lie. We can constantly see how miserable we are compared to everyone else. Maybe these resonate with you, maybe they don't. But however these lies manifest in your life, we cannot deal with them on our own. But the good news that Jesus has given us in this passage is that we do not deal with them on our own. In fact, we have a friend who knows this struggle. We have a God who, in Jesus Christ, felt the full brunt of temptation and lies and is able to help us come out of these very same lives we find ourselves in. We must ask the Holy Spirit to locate them. We can't do it on our own and help us to peel them away and see how they are ruining us. We must also look to the Holy Spirit for strength to shift our gaze to Jesus and the character of life found in Him. His character shows us that true power is not controlling or manipulative, but sacrificial. And true authority is not about radical independence, but about utter dependence on the Father. There is no prescription for how this happens. But as we strive to see Jesus clearly this Lent, let us ask the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. If you are convicted to add something to your routine, to remind you that you are not at home in the lies that oppress you, but that you are truthfully a son or a daughter of God, then do it. 
If you need to fast something tangible from your life that distracts you from seeing and knowing Jesus Christ, do that. Or you could take Pope Francis's recommendation this weekend, his Lenten challenge this year, to fast indifference, giving up ignoring the pain and the poverty around you in your world, in your relationships, and the poor around you. But whatever you do, do not use this season simply as a spiritual justification for a diet detox, a new exercise routine, or eliminating a bad habit you've been wanting to kick. These are not the point. This is about seeing Jesus Christ, who gives us a radical, beautiful vision of what God's character incarnate looks like. It is about inviting the Holy Spirit to work deeply in us, forming us into the likeness of Christ and, in, and into human beings fully alive. Peel away the world of lies and focus in on Jesus during this Lenten season. And I know we will rejoice together on Easter like never before.